Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guests, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us. And now, as always, the highlight of my morning, introducing my producer, Lori Houston. Hi, Lori. (laughs) Hi, Jane. Well, you know, Lori, sometimes enough is enough, even for us super hardy New Yorkers who brave single-digit temperatures while jogging in Central Park, or toughing it out on frigid bike rides to commute to work, neither of which I do. But (laughs) I think I'm ready to take it to the next step. And I was inspired by a story I read in the paper. And this guy, he's an ice climber who actually climbed up a frozen Niagara Falls the first time it has ever been done. And, you know, it's kind of the real-life version of ascending the great ice wall from the Game of Thrones. Okay, so was that the Canadian side or the U.S. side? I don't know. So why I didn't read that far. I just saw the the headline. So why am I mentioning this, you ask? Well, under the heading, there is no such thing as a coincidence. Right before we went on the air, I was invited to try, now wait for it, ice climbing. And the subject was, have an ice day, which I thought was great. And they asked if I wanted to have an adventure. Well, hello. Um, And the adventure is not Niagara Falls. That's, you know, kind of for the advanced among us. This would be jumping off a cliff over a 90-foot frozen waterfall. And the only way I'll go is if you go with me. Okay, you had me until it was, (laughs) (laughs) until you jumped off the, the, you know, I actually like, um, I like the idea of doing ice climbing. So there's little known fact that I think um, Niagara Falls on the Canadian side is only frozen over twice. So it would be pretty impossible to actually have um, that as an as a nice excursion. Um, But yeah, I'd. um, I was kind of hoping you'd say no. So I'd say I have no one to go with. So I can't. Well, so it was the jump that that. uh, that lost me. (laughs) <laughs> well, thankfully, we have two very renowned doctors on the show, although we aren't going to be talking about ice climbing at all. And, you know, Lori, I just love to have doctors on the show who can assure me the quintessential hypochondriac that it is not possible for a human being to contract elm blight. But uh, we are going to be talking about some very serious and very prevalent topics. Um, after the break, we'll be joined by Dr. Robert Guida, who is a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon whose specialty is head and neck surgery. And we're going to be talking about function functional surgeries, and that doesn't mean a facelift, ladies. Um, it's treatment options that you really should consider to make your life better than before. Uh, we're talking about conditions like sinusitis and migraine headaches. So if you are a serial sneezer, wheezer, or sniffler, help is on the way after the break. But first, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Matt Longjohn to the show. Dr. Longjohn is the National Health Officer at the YMCA of the USA, or simply the Y, as many of us call it. He oversees many, if not all, the Y's programs that are really all about helping us achieve our healthy living goals. And just to name a few, these include Live Strong at the YMCA Cancer Survivorship Program that so many of us have heard about. 
and Healthier Communities Initiative, um, uh, and among all the other programs that are spearheaded by the Y. But the one we're going to be talking about today um, is the WISE Diabetes Prevention Program, which is developed to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes. And the doctor's program is often held up by medical experts as the model for fighting the disease outside of the medical clinical environment. Welcome to the show, Dr. Longjohn. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, now, before we get into diabetes itself, I just want to digress a little bit and mention something that I found so encouraging. I read that you played a strategic role in developing the WISE national commitment to bring 85% of more than 9,700 early childhood and after-school care programs into compliance uh, with the new healthy eating and physical activity standard. And that's a commitment first announced by Michelle Obama in two, uh, 2011. Um, and going back to diabetes... Um, it's so important uh, to begin healthy habits young, right? And oh, that there's, can... no, there's no question about that. I mean, I think our entire prevention agenda nationally has to understand that prevention just works best when you start early. Um, you know, you can think about what we've seen as major public health interventions over the last couple decades, whether it's seatbelt usage or um, you know, lack of, of smoking behaviors, tobacco use. Um, you know, we do best when we engage um, the youngest among us in education and information. Um, just like I got in trouble in my household for putting a case of cigarettes behind the wheels of my dad's car as a method <laughs> of trying to get to stop smoking, I think we have to enlist our youngest advocates for health and um, and they're so powerful um, when we give them the tools and the knowledge to become advocates for healthy eating and physical activity. They inspire us all to, to just do better. Um, so it's a really important commitment. We're very, very excited about the work that WISE are doing. We want to transform ourselves from, from what we are currently, the largest provider of after-school and early childhood programs in the country, to the healthiest. Um, and that work is underway. That's good. That's great news. Now let's talk about diabetes. What is it exactly? So diabetes it boils down to uh, an abnormal metabolism of glucose. Um, so in non-medical speak, it means that your body doesn't handle sugar that you eat uh, in the way that is normal. Um, and the result is you have too much blood sugar floating around and too much sugar in your blood does damage to um, all the different organs that it passes through. Um, and so you see damage to the backs of uh, eyeballs and to nerves at the tips of your fingers and you know, in the, the capillary beds of our kidneys. And um, as that sugar kind of clogs up your system, um, you see all kinds of uh, effects. And uh, diabetes is something that creeps up on millions of us, and it's something we all want to avoid. Definitely. You know, I have a friend who says she stopped telling people she had diabetes because she was just tired of always feeling obliged to say either, yes, I'm a diabetic, and yes, I can eat that, or no, I didn't get it because I ate too much sugar. So there is a difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, correct? And, and what is that difference? Um, there is absolutely a difference. Um, so type 1 diabetes mellitus uh, is the type that um, used to be called juvenile 
um, diabetes. And um, that is a, a disorder of the pancreas, which basically means that, um, you know, our, our, there are cells in the pancreas that just don't um, respond to uh, or produce insulin that pushes sugar back into our cells. Um, and that's, you know, often a, it's just something, you know, you can't avoid. Whereas type 2 diabetes, which used to be called adult-onset diabetes, uh, is more that, you know, you've kind of burned out that response to sugar um, over your life by maybe over-consuming it um, or, um, you know, maybe you were already predisposed um, to that um, particular risk. But in any case, your body stops responding to insulin. So you can produce all of it that you want, um, but your body stops responding to it. So type 1, you don't produce insulin, and type 2, your body stops responding to insulin. All right. Now, nationally, how many people would you say are affected by type 2 diabetes? A lot, right? Uh, the total population in the U.S. that has some form of diabetes is around 25 million. Um, and only you know, less than 10% of that population are type 1 um, uh, people with type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it ends up that, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, 22 million Americans with type 2 diabetes. Oh, so that is an enormous amount. You know, I'm just talking about here in New York City, um, instead of the big apple, some people call it the big fat apple, um, because our collective weight gain has basically sparked a diabetes epidemic. It's, you know, one out of 10 city adults have the disease and more than twice the percentage of two decades ago. So that's, I mean, that's scary, basically. And when our former mayor, Bloomberg, as you probably know, had suggested banishing those huge sugary drinks, there was such a public outcry about it that just hours before the bill was, you know, to to kick in, a state judge killed it. And, you know, granted that no one should tell us, you know, we we have a constitutional right to to eat and drink whatever we want as long as, you know, you don't go drinking and driving. But, um, you know, as I mentioned, when you note that a staggering 10.5% of New York City adults, or and that's close to 650,000, have been diagnosed with diabetes and another 230,000 are walking around with it without even knowing it, we must be doing something wrong. And that's that's scary, you know, that's if we... What are we doing wrong here? <laughs> I think it's yeah. the sugary drinks, right? There's never a single a- answer to this. As much as we might want to you know, focus on one issue at a time, um, that's kind of the pitfall of the, of the process you're outlining, that political process, is that um, for every argument that we make about a particular product, someone else can uh, make an argument about a different solution. And um, the the real issue is, is that we have to be acting uh, at multiple levels, firing on all cylinders as a community, as a society, to reverse these trends that we're seeing in chronic diseases. Diabetes is among the most scary um, because of the number of people involved and the effects of diabetes. But whether we're talking about hypertension, um, uh, stroke, heart attack, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, uh, even some forms of cancer. Um, these are now you know, the largest drivers of our healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. Most of people that we know that will be suffering from disease or, or dying prematurely will be you know, dying or, or suffering from 
preventable uh, conditions. And it all boils down to making healthier choices, the easier choices, and acting upon those choices. We have to support individuals with programs and you know, things like quit lines and uh, uh, all kinds of different supports that have been shown to be effective, and the Diabetes Prevention Program is an example of that. Uh, we have to be supporting individuals by uh, instilling within their family um, supportive notions and demand for healthy products. Um, you know, when kids are affected by a chronic illness, it's important to remember they're not the ones shopping. So we have to work with you know, they're caregivers to create family environments that support them in healthy choices. We have to change the way our environments look and feel and work, and that's where some of these policy discussions are coming in, whether it's around sugar-sweetened beverages or whether it's around more bike lanes or whether it's around food access. Um, there are many environmental contributors to chronic disease that we have to attack and, of course, there's also taxes that come into this, too, providing people with economic incentives. We have to use every kind of vehicle at our disposal to address these epidemics, or we will not reverse course. Yeah, I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. Um, now, according, you know, but I was reading that according to the National Institute of Health, uh, studies have shown that losing 5 to 7% of body weight um, can reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes? I mean, that seems so simple, something that we can really do to, to lose some weight. Is that true, that um, losing weight can really reduce that, the risk? Yeah, losing just a moderate amount of weight can very significantly reduce your risk for diabetes in particular. Um, you know, the um, I think sometimes the... You know, when we hear about the headlines of obesity and chronic disease, we as a society kind of think about, oh, how hard it's going to be to, you know, lose the 40 or 50 or maybe 100 pounds that we associate with, um, you know, being necessary for change. And too much of that's probably rooted in messages we get from the weight loss industry or from uh, unhelpful or unhelpful body image um, perceptions that we have uh, from marketing. Um, but the truth is just no matter what your weight, 5 to 7% of weight loss significantly reduces your risk of becoming diabetic. So if you are 200 pounds and you are found to have high, rate, uh, high risk for diabetes, um, what you need to focus on is losing 10 pounds and keeping it off for a year. Um, and the same is true if you are at 250 or 150. You apply that same percentage. But you have to know that you are at risk for diabetes to know that um, you know, some of these outcomes from these studies are going to be the same kinds of outcomes you can expect for yourself. Yeah. So every time you put a huge cheeseburger or anything and you eat all that stuff, fast food, you got to think about that. I mean, it's your, it's your health, um, and it, it's pretty serious. And diabetes can lead to other things, can it not? Is there... Um, if you have diabetes, can you then get other things because of it, or is that just... Yes. Um, so, you know, some of the leading thinkers and researchers in this area, I've, I've heard talk about, um, you know, uh, talk about diabetes in a way that is really illustrative. Uh, when you think about the way I describe sugar gumming up your, your blood vessels um, and the end results, uh, I've heard folks say that diabetes is a disease, that, you know, that you 
don't just die from, you rust away from the inside. Um, you know, basically every part of your body eventually suffers and starts falling apart from the end effects of diabetes. Um, you know, amputations and blindness and dialysis. Um, you know, these are very common long-term outcomes of diabetes. And, um, you know, there's hardly an organ system that isn't in, uh, in some way affected over the 15-year course of, of the disease. Um, the scariest part is that it's uh, these, this damage um, that occurs to our eyeballs and kidneys, et cetera, is, is largely irreversible. Uh, and at the time that people are actually diagnosed with diabetes, some of that damage is already happening. So we have to get in front of it. Uh, how is it diagnosed? A blood test? Yes. Um, you know, the blood tests that you'll hear about are uh, A1C tests, which test how much sugar is coating your red blood cells. You know, red blood cells typically live for about 120 days or so as they're floating around your body. And as they're floating around your body, they kind of get stuck with little sugar molecules on the side of them. And um, the more sugar you have floating around your blood cells, the more sugar is attached to those blood cells. And so when we measure A1C, we're seeing how much, what percent of the sugar on the side of your red blood cells is, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, indicating high rates of blood glucose. Um, then we do, um, you know, fasting plasma glucose, which is just, you know, a blood stick in the morning to see what was your sugar um, uh, concentration at that moment after fasting. Um, and uh, generally speaking, you know, if that's um, over 100, you should be talking to somebody. Um, and you probably already are if you're getting your blood tested. That's good. Um, there are oral glucose tolerance tests that are most commonly administered for uh, women who are pregnant and you're trying to assess a risk of um, gestational diabetes. But that's also a, a, a test that's used for diagnosis of diabetes. So there's a couple of different ways. You know, I was reading... Um somewhere. I, I read a lot about health, obviously, to make sure I don't have what I'm reading about. <laughs> so, um, in, in, a, in a recent study by, uh, done by New York University uh, Colleges of Nursing and, and Dentistry, they found that the dental visit could also be a useful tool for screening among the at-risk undiagnosed patients, you know, to identify who would need further help. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Is that something we should ask our dentists to do when we go for a cleaning, for example? It's you know, I think it's a situation when we deal with the diabetes epidemic is it's all hands on deck. Um, you know, many people who go to their dentist may not be going to a, a routine annual physical or may not have yet a, a kind of primary care health home. And so, you know, I think it's a great um, approach here where, you know, anytime we're interacting with the healthcare system and a screening test is indicated, we should be taking advantage of that. Um, early prevention, as we opened with, works best, and early detection of risk is so important to get ahead of these irreversible conditions. Um, so, you know, any way that we can be collecting um, screening tests, whether it's through the, the dental office visit or through, um, you know, even community screening events, et cetera, we believe that Prevention starts with those screening tests, and, and we need to be having people take those screening tests yearly. Mm -hmm. um, now let's talk about, if um, you will, the, uh, the, the WASE diabetes prevention 
program. It has had such amazing success that through a partnership with the American Medical Association, doctors have actually begun writing prescriptions for patients to participate uh, in this program. Um, how did it begin? Um, it actually you know, began without the wise involvement at all. Back in the 90s, um, folks had microscopically identified what I described before. When people were being diagnosed with diabetes, there was already end organ damage apparent. Um, so people in the medicine community said there must be something earlier than diabetes. You know, what, what is it? What would we call it? Well, let's call it pre-diabetes. And, and then the NIH put a couple hundred million dollars into a randomized control trial, which is the best kind of science to look at, at outcomes. And across more than 20 cities in the United States, they tested a couple different interventions to see if we diagnosed people with something called prediabetes, you know, would we do something to them, with them, um, to prevent their conversion to full-blown diabetes? Uh, the, the interventions that were tested um, were our favorite drug for diabetes, metformin, uh, and a year-long lifestyle change program that focused on losing 5 to 7% of weight and getting 150 minutes of um, moderate to vigorous physical activity into someone's day. I'm oh, sorry, into someone's week. Um, mm -hmm. And at the, um, the program, the study was supposed to go for several years, um, but the NIH actually had to ethically stop the study uh, early because the outcomes were so clear. Uh, not only did metformin help people with prediabetes reduce their risk of becoming diabetic, but the lifestyle modification program that we've described here reduced new cases of diabetes by 58%. Wow. And in an older adult population, that percentage rose to 71%. So what we're saying is, is that people who have increased risk for diabetes, maybe you have a blood glucose level that's high, but not high enough to be characterized as diabetes, or maybe you have a family risk, like a, a first member of your family having a diabetes diagnosis, or maybe you had a brief uh, case of gestational diabetes during um, one of your pregnancies. Um, those are indicators that you might have higher risk than normal for prediabetes, even if you don't, for diabetes, even if you don't have it yet. And if you meet a certain risk threshold, this kind of intervention can reduce your risk of becoming actually diabetic by up to 71%. So after that study was published, um, uh, there was another study done in Indiana that tried to see if the Y could replicate the same results because the intervention that was originally delivered was delivered by healthcare professionals and while it was very effective it was also relatively high cost and in 2008 uh, the Y of uh, Greater Indianapolis in the Indiana School of Medicine published results that showed that the Y could produce the same results with a community health worker type workforce and at about a quarter of the cost and that's what got the CDC and insurance payers and groups like the AMA interested in partnering the Y to spread this intervention. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. Now, how many of the Ys offer the program? Um, at, at this point, um, there are 173 cities worth of YMCAs delivering this program. We've scaled from two YMCAs delivering this program in 2010 
173 as of the end of last month. Um, the program is in more than 1,100 program locations, more than half of which are not YMCAs. Those are church basements or school cafeterias or employee break rooms or waiting rooms of um, you know, clinical um, systems, healthcare systems, doctor's offices. Um, and so we have right now about 2,400 trained lifestyle coaches that are running this program uh, all over the country in 43 states. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Um, I, I have actually a note to ask you this, too. And I, I found this a, a few people who are in their 60s have said sometimes they go for their physical and their, their sugars are higher. Is there a, a late onset? In other words, when you're in your 60s, as you get older, do you have more of a risk for your sugars to be off? Is that pre-diabetic or does that not have a correlation to diabetes? It's just because you're eating too much. <laughs> Age definitely uh, correlates to increased risk of diabetes. Um, so, um, you know, folks older than 60 will generally be found to have enough risk for diabetes to qualify for this intervention. And, and, and well, they should. Now, you mentioned that the, you talked about the year-long lifestyle program. Can you... Uh, mention some of the lifestyle suggestions. I know you said exercise and diet, but, you know, to be a little bit more specific, what should we have daily in our diet and what should we not have, starting with that? Um, yes, yeah, so um, the, the main thing I think for people to understand this is that, um, you know, this intervention is not a diet. Um, this is a lifestyle change, and it takes a while to recognize our behavioral patterns that lead us to overconsume certain things or um, be less active than we might be. Um, and through very small steps taken progressively over the course of a year, um, you know, we help people to facilitate changes in lifestyle. And this program is actually offered in a group setting. So what's really great about it is, is that um, participants are supporting each other in identifying solutions. Um, the, the kinds of guidance that they get um, from folks who are running the curriculum, who are using the exact same messages and educational materials that were in that original study, are to first focus on what you eat. Um, it turns out that you can't exercise, if you're a typical American right now, you can't exercise enough to um, kind of counterbalance the excess amount of calories that you take in every day. So um, you have to kind of start in any lifestyle change program with an understanding that you have to address what's going in first. We actually don't even talk about physical activity in this program until um, the fifth week of the intervention. Um, and so we focus first on food. And within food, um, you know, one of the things that's most important people have to start with is portion size and um, trying to get fat out of the diet. Um, you know, no YMCA staff person delivering this program is going to give someone a specific, you know, kind of nutritional uh, prescription. Um, that's not who we are. We aren't nutritionists or dietitians generally, um, though we do have many of them in our workforce. That's not how this program is delivered. It's not a prescriptional thing. It's it's a facilitated conversation, and we help people make different changes in their diet 
such as cutting fat or managing portion, um, and and then cutting sugar as well, um, mm-hmm. to get to a calorie balance that, you know, when you start introducing physical activity and increasing maybe just a couple of minutes a week, um, walking the dog, um, going for a family walk after dinner, um, you know, any simple thing, um, you know, you can start getting to a total balance that will lead you to this 5 to 7% weight loss over a year. Yeah, and also carbohydrates, I would think. They, they increase your blood sugar as well. People think it's just sugar, but it's, it's uh, heavy on the carbs, the pastas, the starchy vegetables, too much rice and all the uh, – and we do eat a lot of carbohydrates in this country. We do. Lots of, lots of, lots of uh, refined carbohydrates, which are, which are really not good. Uh, so, doctor, um, thank you so much for being with us. Um, the net net, of course, we should all make a concerted effort to manage diabetes if we have it and prevent it if we don't. How do we find your program? Um, you can find out if a Y around your community is running the program by going to ymca.net forward slash diabetes. And um, that list of program locations is updated every 30 days. Um, you know, just in the last month, we had eight more cities join the program. Um, so if it's not there right away, please uh, check back again. There's also, through the CDC, a list of other organizations that deliver the same uh, intervention, um, and that's cdc.gov forward slash diabetes, and you're looking there for a registry of diabetes prevention programs. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being with us. Would you like to go ice climbing with Lori and me? <laughs> Uh, you can you can make sure that. <laughs> that was the part that scared me too. <laughs> okay, all right, doctor. Thanks so much, everyone. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. Stay with us after this break. We'll be back. This portion of the Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts. Express Scripts oversees 1.4 billion pharmacy claims each year, on behalf of employers, health plans unions, and government health programs. Express Scripts works to make the use of prescription drugs safer and more affordable for the 100 million Americans they serve. Understanding that better decisions lead to healthier outcomes, Express Scripts helps patients make the best drug choices and health choices possible. Their disease-specific pharmacists are here to help you better understand your prescribed therapy, lower your overall health care costs, and, ultimately, stay on the path to better health. For more information, visit ExpressScripts.com. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael's show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune in to Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins-Michael and Better Than Before. Welcome back, everyone. We are on the air live. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins-Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm here with Lori, as always. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Robert Guida. Dr. Guida is skilled in both cosmetic plastic surgery as well as in functional nose surgery. He has repeatedly been listed in the Castle Connolly Guide of Best Doctors, recognizing him as one of the best doctors in New York. He has also been named one of the best beauty doctors in New York City and also in New York Magazine's Best Doctor Issue. He is obviously 
the best. Welcome to the show, Dr. Guida. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. As you know, New York is like at a standstill with, the, with this blizzard, so um, every, everything has gotten backed up. So thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Guida, you know, I've heard people describe some symptoms as my head feels like it's full of packing material, material, my eyes are throbbing, my nose is dripping profusely, and this yucky stuff, for lack of a better word, is coming out of it. Um, and they aren't sure, is it a seasonal allergy, is it a cold, is it something completely different? And, and if it is completely different, which is your specialty, uh, what could it be? Well, when people have symptoms of a runny, congested nose, it could be allergic rhinitis or it could be uh, sinusitis. Uh, when you describe yucky, uh, yellow, green, or foul-smelling discharge from the nose, that usually indicates a, uh, an infection, most likely a bacterial infection. But there is some confusion as to whether uh, nasal congestion and stuffiness is an allergy or whether it's a viral infection or a bacterial Infection. So uh, a, a doctor uh, on, on examination and by listening to a careful history should be able to figure that out. Yeah, but usually for food allergies, I know you get very stuffy, or I do. If I eat something, I get an immediate reaction. But you know, we're going to talk about sinusitis, which is your which is your specialty. I right. mean, how do you, how do you know that? Uh, and that's that's prevalent. A lot of people actually have that, and they think it's other things, as as I mentioned. Um, and you said that sinusitis is responsible for 58 million sick days from work at an annual cost of $8 billion, and one of three Americans experience some form of it, 73% being women. Um, most of us don't even, you know, we that's not one of the things on our radar when we have a stuffy nose or some of those symptoms. So what what is it, and why are so many people experiencing it? Well, sinusitis, uh, what it is, is a, a blockage of the small little air pockets in the skull called the sinuses, and they drain through small, tiny passageways into the nose. These t- small little holes can get blocked up from allergies or from a deviated septum or polyps in the nose. And when those little drainage holes block up, the mucus that's normally secreted in the sinus cavities gets trapped in there, and then it becomes a nidus of infection and viruses and bacteria like to grow in that stagnant mucus sitting in the sinuses. Uh, and then the patient will suffer symptoms of uh, a stuffy nose, a runny nose, usually headaches, pain. And when it gets infected, you can get a foul odor possibly and a yellow greenish discharge. And that's when it becomes clearly different than allergic rhinitis. We have like a swamp right in our nose, right there, living right, right. living right there. Um, and and but what's the difference between that and like a cold? You know, because sometimes if you have a cold yeah. and an infection, so that's different though. It's not like an ordinary cold, right? Right. Uh, an ordinary uh, common cold is caused by a virus, and it causes the lining of the nose to swell up, and uh, the mucus the mucus glands make more mucus and it drains. Now. Frequently, uh, the common cold will go away on its own because uh, someone's own immune system is able to fight the virus. However, sometimes uh, the common cold, the viral infection, will then escalate into a bacterial infection. The patient's symptoms will worsen, the headaches will worsen, the uh, discharge will uh, become a darker yellow color. There may be an odor to the discharge. There may be an odor to the discharge, and that's when you begin to... uh, 
suspect or uh, become to diagnose a bacterial infection of the sinuses. And at that point, it's uh, prudent to treat it with an oral antibiotic. So now, how do you, I mean, you, you come to the doctor and, and you, you can tell, right, obviously, when you do the examination of what, what that is, um, if it's a cold. So you really should. If you have something like a cold that lasts too long, it, it probably isn't a cold, as you say. It's something a little more serious. Now, what, right. um, what are some of the um, things that you can get if you let it go, the sinusitis? Um, you know, what, are, what can, the symptoms can arise um, or conditions due to having that? Not taking well, care. Well, uh, there's two types of sinusitis. There's acute, acute sinusitis, which means it's sporadic and it can happen after a common cold, meaning it, you get a head cold and it turns into infection, uh, and it can happen once or twice a year. You treat it with an antibiotic and it goes away. Your headaches and the pain will go away. In two, three, or four sinus infections a year, we call that chronic sinusitis. It usually means there's a deviated septum or a polyps in the nose. And recurrent sinusitis can lead to fatigue, uh, recurrent infections around the eye. Before we had antibiotics, sinusitis was life-threatening because the sinuses are close to the brain and they're close to the eyes. And we used to see cases of meningitis and even infections of the orbit. now that we treat sinusitis with antibiotics, these life-threatening symptoms uh, aren't there. But chronic sinusitis can um, make you miss a lot of days from work. They make you quite lethargic. Uh, the risk of meningitis is still there. And if someone has chronic sinusitis uh, and they're feeling sick almost all the time or several times a year, that's when they should begin to consider having a surgical drainage of the sinuses. Now, Doctor, tell, let's talk a little bit about migraine headaches because I know a lot of people who have them and they don't know why, and and they're pretty, um, uh, you know, they 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 can knock you out for quite a while. You, you right. people who really suffer from them. It's 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 awful. You you know, you feel like your head is being drilled. Um, can that be a part of the sinuses that people don't even know, and they're blaming it on other things? Yes, I've uh, seen numerous patients that have had a diagnosis of. Uh, migraine headaches, and they seem to be triggered by recurrent sinus infections. I've actually had successful alleviation of the migraine headaches or the headaches from uh, successfully performing sinus surgery. Now, there are many causes of headaches. Uh, Migraine is one cause, but a sinus infection can trigger a migraine. I've also seen patients diagnosed with migraine headaches, uh, but when we obtain a CT scan, a CAT scan, uh, a computerized x-ray of the sinuses, we noted that there were uh, blockages of the sinus passageways contributing to the headaches. And the sinus surgery was able to successfully eliminate the recurrent headaches. So it really wasn't a migraine headache. So sometimes the diagnosis is confused. Sometimes sinusitis can actually trigger a migraine headache. And uh, it should be, a sinusitis should be considered uh, in the differential diagnosis of recurrent headaches and even migraine headaches. Yeah. Now, why is it that more women have it than men? Um, I don't know. I do see that in my practice. Uh, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I think it may be hormonal. I know that when women uh, are, are pregnant or when they're on certain hormones, the nasal lining is more congested. Many of my pregnant patients will get very, very congested. Uh, and actually get sinus infections, and I have to talk to their obstetricians about 
uh, treating them with antibiotics because there are certain antibiotics we should and should not use during pregnancy. So I think that's hormonally related. Hmm. Now how about snoring? For those of us with a partner who snores like a warthog, um, is that something that is also, um, could that be related to, to sinuses and people, you know, don't know that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, snoring uh, is caused by some sort of obstruction in the airway. And I would say that uh, frequently it's caused by nasal obstruction, large turbinates, a deviated septum, chronic sinusitis causing polyps in the airway. Um, and uh, successfully treating that surgically can eliminate or decrease snoring. Uh, however, I would say that it's, uh, a 30 or 40 percent of snoring is also due to uh, possibly obesity and also blockage in the back of the throat along uvula, along soft palate, large tonsils. So if someone has a spouse that uh, is snoring loudly, they should definitely have a thorough evaluation by an otolaryngologist, a head and neck surgeon, to evaluate the nasal airway as well as the airway in the oral cavity in the back of the throat. Well, I have a tonsils that the size that ate St. Louis. I always thought they would shrink as I got older, but they seem to have, they seem to be the same size. I don't, I don't know. I thought, don't they shrink when you get older, your tonsils? But maybe they're catching stuff. That's why I don't mm-hmm. have sinusitis. It could be. Well, you know? I, yeah, it could be. I, mean, I grew up uh, in an era where everyone had their tonsils out and I, I had a tonsillectomy when I was five years old and never get a sore throat. But uh, I think in the last 20 years or so, the surgeons do much less tonsillectomy. So I, I see adults with large tonsils. I think after a certain age, most of the time, they do shrink and decrease in size. Uh, however, I see uh, some adults with large tonsils, and I think they do help fight infections somewhat. But they can cause obstruction, snoring, and they can be quite irritating if, if, if they're getting swollen on a regular basis. Right. Yeah, years ago, it was tonsils and adenoids. They came out just right away. But now right. they figure you need your appendix, too. Now I think you, you kind of need that, that stuff. You need some of your organs, all of your organs. That's why you have them to, to right. function. Uh, well, especially uh, the adenoids and tonsils are uh, helpful in making uh, white blood cells. Uh, when you're a, a younger age, they help fight infections. But as you get older, they're... A less necessary, but still necessary. I think uh, if you have a, a child with significant nasal obstruction, loud snoring, and recurrent middle ear infections, there still uh, are sometimes indications for an adenoidectomy and a tonsillectomy. In fact, uh, over the years, uh, many pediatric otolaryngologists now doing partial tonsillectomies. They're, they're removing only part of the tonsil and part of the adenoid and leaving leaving some of it behind to help fight infections, which is kind of a new trend in pediatric otolaryngology just in the last 10 years. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you do both aesthetic and functional surgeries, correct? Now, what's the difference? Well, uh, I was trained uh, in uh, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, which is commonly called ENT or ear, nose, and throat. And we uh, during my training, we operated on the head and neck and the face all the time for cancer, tumors, and uh, sinusitis. We were always in the nose as well. Uh, and uh, we take care of a lot of broken noses. And when you fix a broken nose, it's very much like doing a rhinoplasty. So my training was very uh, functional and cosmetically oriented. After my residency, I did further training in facial plastic surgery. So my 
uh, specialty is just cosmetic surgery from the neck up. Uh, and I'm very uh, uh, well skilled at taking care of the functional as well as the cosmetic component of uh, nasal surgery. I, I feel if someone's having a rhinoplasty and they have a really big nose and you're making it smaller, you could decrease the internal airway and it could be tighter to breathe. So I think we have to pay attention to both the function as well as the structure and the cosmetic aspect of the nose because the two of them are intimately related. So you do the aesthetic and the functional at the same time, correct? So in other words, the rhinoplasty yes. and the sinus um, um, simultaneously. I want it all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, mean, you, you, I think it, it, it behooves the surgeon to be skilled in both aspects of it because uh, if you're just looking at the cosmetic part of the nose and ignoring the internal part, I don't think I, I think you could end up occasionally with patients that are breathing worse after the rhinoplasty. So I think... Uh, it's important to pay attention to both aspects of nasal surgery. Right. Well, even deviated symptoms can go back, right, unless they're structurally correct. Um, I've known cases right. that they... Yeah. Right. A deviated septum, um, you know, the front part of the deviated septum is cartilage. Cartilage has a memory and it wants sometimes to spring back the way it used to be. But I think uh, most of the time if the septoplasty is done thoroughly and carefully, it should stay in the position. There are occasions as people age where can uh, tend to go back to one side or the other, but usually you can get a significant improvement in the uh, nasal obstruction by a well-executed septoplasty. Right. Now, has surgery changed over the years? Is it they use better, you use better anesthesia that, you know, years ago you'd knock them out? And I mean, I had a hip replacement with just an, an epidural. I mean, I was completely knocked out, but um, still. So do you now have um, shorter... Um, anesthesias that you can, um, they wake, you wake up sooner and you're not as nauseous. You know, I guess with the heavy ones, you do get other side effects. Yeah. How has that changed? Just um, aesthetic. Yeah. Let's talk about aesthetic surgery in general. No, it's uh, definitely anesthetic medications have changed. Um, I think it's important for anyone having uh, cosmetic surgery or even functional surgery or hip surgery to make sure that your, you know, your anesthesiologist is board certified and well trained and most of them are. Uh, but for nasal surgery, uh, we, I use a specific, uh, head and neck anesthesiologist. The drugs have changed. Uh, we use far less narcotics now, narcotics such as fentanyl or morphine plus significant amount of nausea and vomiting, which is something, uh, which is generally avoided with nasal surgery now. The newer drugs uh, are actually have an anti-nausea effect. So um, this uh, anesthesia has changed. The agents wore off quickly after surgery, so people uh, wake up quicker from anesthesia. And there are better ways to control the airway during anesthesia. One of the most important things during anesthesia is, especially nasal surgery, is to protect the airway so mucus and blood doesn't um, get into the airway. So there are newer devices that can do that. So it's much safer. The drugs are shorter acting and there's much less nausea and vomiting. Now, when you do that sinus surgery, um, do you put a little camera into your nasal passages? Um, and it's kind of quick, right? So you stick a camera up there and you, you take the tissue um, accurately because you can see. It. So that's kind of a short surgery. So are you, do you knock out someone yeah. for that? or do you? Uh, yes. Uh, sinus surgery has changed a lot when I... Uh, first in my residency about 25 years ago, uh, CT scans were just, you know, evolving. 
and endoscopic sinus surgery was just evolving now. It's pretty much standard of care for everyone that has a surgery to have a computerized axial tomography, computerized CAT scan of the sinuses. So we see the anatomy clearly. Uh, we use endoscopic sinus surgery. So we, the endoscope is hooked up to a camera, which is then shown on a large screen. So the images are magnified and you can see things very clearly. But the newest advance in sinus surgery is called image-guided surgery. The CT scan comes on a disc, uh, like a CD disc. It's put into a computer, uh, and then it's attached uh, to my endoscope. So wherever my surgical instruments are, I can see where I'm working on the inside the skull at any given point. So it's like a, a GPS for sinus surgery. I can see precisely where my instruments are located at all times during the surgery. So it's very, very safe and allows the doctor to do a very accurate and more thorough job, but in a safer manner. Yeah, then the and patient, this is all fairly new. The patient can put it on YouTube after. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> everybody can everybody can watch it. Um, now you just mentioned breathing when you do the rhinoplasty. Um, breathing, obviously, you know, aside from the obvious, it's important and it's pretty simplistic. But um, do we breathe? And that's very much part of exercise and just feeling better than before. Is correct breathing? But a lot of the things that we have nasally and in our head compromises the breathing. So let's talk a little bit about breathing. What What is the, as I said, other than the obvious, what is the importance of correct breathing? Well, um, I, I, I had done yoga for many years, and the, and the instructors always stress breathing through your nose. And I, I have a lot of patients that do yoga. And when you can't breathe through your nose, it becomes very disruptive. Uh, and when you're uh, sleeping at night and if your nose is obstructed, your mouth gets very dry, you can get bad breath, and actually you can get a sore throat. So uh, breathing through your nose, I think, is very important. It helps filter the air. It helps humidify the air. Uh, so nasal obstruction can be pretty debilitating uh, through the course of the day. Um, and it can usually be caused by nasal polyps or deviated septum, chronic sinusitis, or a broken nose. Um, so when people begin to breathe better through their nose after successful surgery, they just feel more energized, and when they're exercising, uh, they get more oxygen, and they just feel more alive. Yeah, and we, we definitely, that's good, and everything really centers with, with the breath. Right. Uh, now, doctor, as a as a doctor, of course, and a, and a, a surgeon, as the best doctor and a, a surgeon, um, let's talk about some practical uh, lifestyle advice um, that you give your patients. Uh, aside from the necessary surgeries and aside from their initial diagnosis, what what should we all remember from you to follow every day for a good um, lifestyle plan? Well, uh, I think. Um it's important to do things in moderation. Um, I think it's, it sounds very simple, but if you're going to consider surgery, for example, I think it's important to uh, examine your motives and uh, ask yourself why you're having this. A lot of my patients that want sinus, that have sinusitis ask, do I need sinus surgery? And I think it's important to understand, does it affect your lifestyle? Uh, not everybody needs surgery right away. And uh, there are other things you can do in your lifestyle, like drinking plenty of water, exercising on a regular basis, and just paying attention to how you take care of yourself. Uh, I see a lot of people that want cosmetic surgery, 
yet they're perhaps uh, smokers or overweight, but they're not taking care of themselves holistically. And I think they're not approaching the whole thing properly. I, I think you can make your nose look better or you can have a really beautiful facelift, but if you're living an unhealthy lifestyle uh, overall, ultimately you're not going to be happy. Yeah, and you just look old with a facelift. I mean, it, it just right. it makes it, it may, right? I mean, right. your skin. I, yeah, and I do skin. have patients that, yeah, and I have many patients that uh, actually are, are, are fit, healthy. Uh, they have some sun-damaged skin and looseness and laxity of the facial skin, but they're happy, they're vibrant, they're active, and they don't want a facelift, and they look great. So not everybody needs a super tight neck or face. I think everyone should live a healthy life and be happy. Well, speak for yourself, doctor. I, I'm coming. The, the, my next appointment, if it wasn't snowing today, I'm going to take a cab right to your office. You know, I, I kind of had an interesting diagnosis because I went for, I need to have an implant, a tooth implant. And as I'm having the x-ray, the dentist is saying, oh, well, um, the oral surgeon is saying, well, you seem to have, it's kind of near, it's in a back tooth. It's near your sinuses. You have like a dropped sinus. And I thought, oh, God, with everything else that's dropped, now my sinus is dropped too. Right. Um, is that, I mean, do your sinuses drop as you get older? <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was at my dentist the other day, and he just got a CAT scan in his uh, office, and they do their own X-rays now. And he was telling me that he sees more and more patients. I don't know if it's a drop sinus. He may have meant that the maxillary sinus was lower, and right. sometimes the tooth can actually erupt into the sinus. Uh, and sometimes when they're doing an implant, the implant can cause a sinus infection. Uh, I mean, one thing that does happen, there is bone erosion as we get a little older, and uh, sometimes uh, you can get uh, a drop sinus or a decay around the tooth because of erosion of bone. But um, the sinus don't specifically drop like a necklace drops. Hmm. And like everything else drops, like your stomach and your boobs, you know, and whatever else drops as you get older. Um so I am going to have it. If I need this implant and I need to have a sinus lift, I'm going to go to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, right, right. Heck with the oral surgeon. I'm going to you for that. Um, That's right. So do you, do you do facelifts as well? Is that part of yes. your practice? Yes. Yeah. I do facelifts and cosmetic eyelid surgery and laser resurfacing. We do a lot of resurfacing even with facelifts because you, know, if you can tighten the skin and muscle of the face and neck, but if there's a lot of textural sun damage issues, uh, I think it sometimes looks, looks better if you can fix both at the same time. So frequently I'll do a face neck lift and then I, I have a fractional carbon dioxide laser in my office that uh, works really well. So I'll simultaneously, before we're all done with the procedure, just resurface the skin so that they're getting the benefit of a new texture as well as tightness of the underlying structures. Right. They do have the new, like, Ulthera, which is a, um, right. like, a sonogram. But those hurt, though, no? If you get, well, you're out. Yeah, I, I, I look closely at uh, those technologies. I don't want to denigrate them, um, but I, you know, the results are subtle. Uh, I, I don't think they're inexpensive for a patient. Um, I think you have to have multiple treatments, three to five treatments in a month apart. Uh, and the results are subtle at best. Um, so uh, I don't want to, again, denigrate or poo-poo them completely, but uh, I'm not a big fan, but I think if someone has the time and the money and they don't want to face it and they want no downtime, it's certainly 
worth trying, but you have to have realistic expectations. So they don't always work as well, and they so right. even they, yeah, I, I have uh, patients that are editors and you know TV or you know people, and they get these things for free, and and and, and they're not sure it really works, you know. And uh, so uh, my wife, you know, is like she's at the age where she wants this stuff done as well, and she had me meet with the all therapy people and a couple other. I just I just couldn't spend the money. I, I just didn't think it was worth it. But you know there are. Dermatologists and their plastic surgeons that own the machine and they have a lot of experience and uh, it may work in their hands, but you have to just have realistic expectations because it's not going to give you the same result as a fractional carbon dioxide laser, which has more downtime. Of course, it's not going to give you the same result as a facelift, obviously. Yeah, but you're out though when you give those lasers. That's all part of the surgery, is it not? So you don't, because those, they hurt. I mean, it's a, lasers are very painful. Uh, especially right. usually when I, yeah, when I do the fractional carbon dioxide, I really prefer people to be sedated because, you know, it hurts. But I have some people that do it away. But even all therapy or fromage, they all kind of hurt. Um, yeah. A little they bit. Do. do you do fillers also or no? I do uh, lots of fillers and lots of Botox. And there are right. limits to that as well. I mean, but um, I think Botox works amazingly well if it's used judiciously. Uh, I think fillers are being overused. There are people that are now doing lunchtime facelifts or the liquid facelifts where they'll inject, you know, 10 to 15 syringes of filler right. into someone's face. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that's kind of scary. But um, now what it, happens again, when you're overfilled? Does that, could you, because <laughs> your face explode? Or do you just look overfilled or does it go down a little bit? I guess it goes down a little bit over time though, no? Or? Yeah, it, goes, it definitely lasts for 9 to 12 months. Uh, initially when it's done, uh, I went to a seminar once uh, and a, a doctor had a volunteer and he actually did it over lunch and he gave a lecture. Then we had lunch and while we were having lunch, the, the doctor said, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to take Joe and I'm going to do my liquid facelift and I'm going to come back in an hour and you're going to see what he looks like. And he pumped in 12 to 15 syringes of this stuff and the guy looked pretty puffy because he just had it done and I would assume over the next couple of days the puffiness went down and he looked okay but uh, it's just an unusual way of approaching that problem does that get in your system like Botox and because that's poison basically I mean you wouldn't eat bad tuna and then you're going to put that in your forehead theoretically I mean I know it's you know a minute minute uh, um, uh, distillation of it but um, all the the fillers and all the stuff that you put on I know what you put on goes in um, but I mean is that negative for our health or not really. Um, and not really. I mean, it's not being injected into the bloodstream itself. It's under the skin, and your immune system recognizing, especially the filler, recognizing it as a foreign substance. It does. The white blood cells do start working on it over a period of uh, several months, like collagen, which we used to use a long time ago, lasted six to eight weeks, and now Restylane and uh, Juvederm last about nine months. But your white blood cells do identify it and start eating it away, but it's not, it's not, it's not absorbed systemically into the, into the bloodstream. I mean, there have been studies suggesting that Botox causes uh, Alzheimer's disease in rats or something. I don't know how oh, they determine that. Really? I know. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm, oh, I use Botox cool. and my, you know, but uh, I, I've been using Botox on my patients for about 15 years with really no long-term adverse effects that I've noticed. Well, everything causes Alzheimer's. Now, aluminum and, you know, you shouldn't wear 
uh, deodorant, which I am kind of wary of. I do, <clears throat> I try to look for things that don't have aluminum in them because I do think that that could be a, uh, a cause. Since you don't really know what the cause is, you, you try to not right. do things that if you read about it. Um, so, but what are most patients you have, women, they want the facelifts or they want the nose or the eyes? I mean, what is it that the most wanted surgeries, aside from the sinus? This is more aesthetic. Well, uh, my practice, uh, in the aging face practice, uh, we see a lot of women in their late 40s, gradually, you know, as they approach 50 or sometimes into their 50s, with them, and some men as well, uh, begin to complain that they're beginning to look like their mother. They look at pictures and they say, that's not a person, I don't recognize that person when I look in the mirror. And it's usually sagginess of the neck and, and looseness of the skin around the jowls, around the angle, the mandible. Uh, and that's really what starts to kill people. My wife sits at the dinner table almost every night pulling her cheeks back. Uh, and I have to say, she, and she looks more youthful when it's back like that. And that's when a, a, a judiciously well-performed face and neck lift can make someone look 10 years younger. And the procedure is different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. People aren't pulled really tight anymore. No one looks ridiculous. The scars are well camouflaged. And I think when you combine that with resurfacing of the skin and generally good skin care, meaning using a sunblock, and uh, during um, the entire year, I think you can get very good natural results. I really firmly believe that if plastic surgery is done the right way, correctly, we can get older and still look very good. Um, and I've seen that in my practice. I have patients that have operated, did their eyelids when they were 40, their patients when they were 50 or 55, and they look better now than they did when they were 40, just from little tweaking. Right, yeah, I was going to say, carefully, slowly. Yeah. Carefully and judiciously. And what would it take for, your, for you to do a facelift on your wife? She's probably going, why isn't he doing it? He does it for everyone else. I mean, he's the best doctor in New York, <laughs> and yet he won't do well, my facelift. What's wrong with this picture? I know. Well, just watching her every night at the dinner table pulling her neck back is driving me nuts. So. <laughs> it's, time for a neck, it's time for a neck lift, doctor, I think. Here you go. Um, I know. All right. So, Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. Let's, um, where, can, where can our listeners find you? I'm sorry? Where can our listeners find you? Oh, we can, uh, I have a website, www.drguida.com, D-R-G-U-I-D-A.com. So uh, a pretty well-informative website with before and after pictures and videos of sinus surgery. And I'm in the Upper East Side of Manhattan on 92nd and Park. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you. So for sneezers, wheezers, snifflers, go to you. And also if you want to look better than before. So there you go. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you again, doctor, for being with us. Yeah. That's our show. Uh, thank you, Lori, as always. And thank you all for listening. This is Jane Wilkins-Michael. I will see you next week. Until then, be wise, be well, be better than before. Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.